The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. So I'd like to end the service in about a half an hour. Um, and um, I, I had a wave of emotion hit me just as we sung just now. And I, it, it wasn't just emotion, though. There was some content here going on. And, uh, and I feel as though at the end of the service, when we sing the hymn that Jana just sang to us, um, I'm going to ask people, if you want prayer this morning, to just come up and, and sit on the front pew. And after we sing that song and the service is dismissed, we want to pray for you. So those of you in leadership, uh, you can just be noting that uh, to come forward with me and pray for anybody that stays and, and remains behind. And, and you might already know, you might already know you need prayer. And I ask you not to resist that. But it could be that you don't know yet, and the Word of God has to inform you. So let's pray that that'll happen now. Father, we thank you for your Word. And uh, thank you for safe places, God. For a family of believers where we can open up and share and and receive encouragement and prayer, whether it's for physical or spiritual, emotional, family, financial, whatever the need is, God. And so, Lord, just do your work. Do do what you want today in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I sure enjoyed last night, too. Kevin was mentioning it this, this earlier, and um, uh, when I mentioned to you that one of the staff of Soul Sanctuary came to me after the evening was done, and they said, you know, could you tell your church thank you so much, because they were so helpful. We rent this place out a lot, and we don't get the kind of help that you guys gave us, so praise God, and thank you for those of you that were part of that. One of the special spots for me last night was just hearing all the people praying and this incredible unity and agreement in prayer that we had, <clears throat> and um, hearing different voices pray, just like we had Sig lead us in, in prayer this morning, is such a special part of, of this. And the last two months, I've been hearing a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, in email and phone conversations and meetings and so on. And let me share with you some of the things that I've been hearing from people. One person said, this effort has been all about us working out our faith in real time. It has been about the muscle of faith growing, getting the body used to different muscles working together. Another person said, Our congregation has been on a journey to see what God is up to. Are we willing to step into that space where only faith can be the response? Another person said, we are, We're not proposing to build. We are already being built God has taken many individuals and molded them to work together in harmony toward a unified goal and for His glory. That doesn't happen in today's world. Everybody's too busy trying to get what they want rather than what God wants. Another person said this, it's time for us to put our faith into action. Another one said, this campaign has been a long and challenging thing and we're on the home stretch now. Let's not take our eyes off of Jesus who has great things in store. Let's not get distracted by the human endeavor challenges. Let's keep our focus on Christ. Another person said simply this, it's all about the journey. 
I'm excited about all these things and to hear how God is rallying and giving unity and momentum. But you know, <clears throat> I'm primarily a pastor. And so I am very excited about future possibilities if God leads us to build and so on. But primarily, I'm a pastor, and so what I'm most excited about is seeing the flock and the sheep around me that are getting excited right now about the things that God is doing in their hearts as he stirs you individually, as he stirs us as a church. And that, for me, is real exciting. You know, just a, about a month ago or more, I was at a, a, a retreat, a prayer retreat at Camp Nudemick <clears throat> that... Um, our regional minister, Gordon Stork, organized. That's the last time I saw him before he passed away. And while I was at this prayer retreat at Camp Nudemick, I was sitting down with Pastor Sig Seidel of Mission Baptist Church. And he shared with me about a conversation that he had, I don't know how many years ago, when he was called to Mission Baptist. And he said that there was an old member of the church that was reminiscing about the glory days, the old days, the, the great times that used to have. <clears throat> And Sig Seidel responded and surprised this person by saying that he believed that the best days were ahead of them and not behind them. And if you know the history of that church and why Sig was, was sent there and so on, you might know that's incredible prophetic or faith-building words to say. And uh, he, he said that Mission Baptist was not to be a palliative care ministry for him, to a dying church, to give them a decent burial, and that as he began to minister, he said, God told him that I will build my church, you feed the sheep. I will build my church, you, you feed the sheep. I, I was very encouraged by that. <clears throat> and then to go to association meetings and to hear about young, young people like Mark and Sharon Henkelman, like uh, ben Craker, that are working in the West End with Mission Baptist to see a renewed vision take place in that part of the city. See, the word that I keep on seeing surface in our conversations here and in outside of here in other churches is this word faith. I mean, I just keep on hearing the word faith. It keeps on coming up. God is stretching our faith, building our faith, growing our faith. We are talking about the muscle of faith. We need to put faith into action. We're walking by faith, not by sight. This is a journey of faith. I even heard it kind of a, sounds like a list, but we're faithing the future with confidence. <laughs> you know, I mean, like that word faith just keeps on coming up. And it's, it's, it's key. It's key to what God is doing among us. And... Uh, and whenever we see it grow, it's worth celebrating. You know, we're hardwired, friends. When we come into this earth, we're hardwired to not be full of faith, but to be independent, to depend on our own stuff, to, be, to think of our own wisdom, lean on our own understanding, use our own resources. But God wants to grow us in faith so that it's His glory that gets seen and His power. And so He's going to always lead us in paths that force us or give us opportunity to trust Him more. That's one of the things we're learning about in the book that we're reading together by Major Ian Thomas, The Indwelling Life of Christ. He writes in this book that true repentance says, I cannot. And then it says, true faith adds, but God, you can. And that is the commentary on us as individuals walking with God in all kinds of areas of our lives, and that's the commentary on us collectively that God is doing in our midst. So 
I'm excited about that, and I look forward to what God's going to do. Well, in recent weeks, we've, we've been studying First, First Kings. We've been looking at the dedication of Solomon's temple, a kind of obscure passage of Scripture in the Old Testament that maybe you haven't read many times. We spent three weeks on chapter 8 talking about this, the glory of God filling that new place that Solomon had built, the dedication prayer, the blessing of the Israelites, the sacrificing as they dedicated this place. And today we come to chapter 9 of 1 Kings and we look at God's response to this, this period of dedication of the temple. So we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 9. God's response to what Solomon and Israel did in the dedication of the temple. And if you have a Bible, could you turn to 1 Kings 9 now? And if you're able to, would you stand with me and listen to the Word of God? 1 Kings chapter 9, the first nine verses. When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had achieved all he had desired to do, The Lord appeared to him a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard the prayer and plea you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws... I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father when I said, You shall never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you, and if you go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them, and I will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. And though this temple is now imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and will scoff. And they will say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? And people will answer, it is because they have forsaken the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is the why the Lord has brought all this disaster upon them. May God bless his word. You may be seated. It took Solomon seven years to build the temple, according to verse 1. And it took him another 13 years to build his own palace. This is found in chapter 6, verse 38, and chapter 7, verse 1. And so a total of 20 years has passed. Now, I don't know about you, but 20 years is a long enough time for a lot of stuff to happen, isn't it? Some of you are are old enough (laughs) to look back 20 years and think about your life. I want you to do that right now. Here's how you do it. You take your age and you subtract 20. Yeah, you're with me. That's good. That's about as far as I got in math, actually. So go back 20 years. Think about what your life was like 20 years ago. Some of you would would maybe be able to take your spiritual temperature back then compared to now. And you could say, back then I was closer to God, or back then I, I was way, I was much farther away from God. 20 years is enough time 
to see a lot of stuff happen in our lives, isn't it? And in this scripture, we read that 20 years earlier, God had visited Solomon. And now in chapter 9, we're reading about this second epiphany. Now in chapter 3, the first appearance that God had with Solomon, he found a young man, an inexperienced man, and an insecure man somewhat. And because of his insecurity, a very humble man before God. A man that was filled with gratitude that he should be chosen as the king to follow his father David. That's the kind of Solomon that we read about in chapter 3. But I'm afraid that's not the man that we read about in chapter 9 and 10 and 11. And I want to just pause for a moment to give you a a few clues as to why this is the case. In chapter 9, we won't be reading it, but in verses 10 to 14, for example, we read about all of the the gold and the pine logs and the cedar that Hiram, king of Tyr, had given to Israel. And on the 20-year commemoration of his kingdom and reigning, Solomon responds to, the, to Hiram, king of Tyr, by giving him, gifting him 20 towns along the border of Israel. Hiram is, is delighted, I'm sure, And he gets in his boat or caravan or whatever he is to go there. He visits these 20 towns. And it says in the scriptures in verses 10 to 14 that when he arrived, he called them the land of Kabul, which if you notice in your footnote means good for nothing. Now, that to me is just a little peak into what's happening to Solomon over these 20 years. Instead of responding with gratitude and grace, he is the richest man around. He responds by getting rid of some unwanted turf. In verses 15 to 22, we read as well in chapter 9 about forced labor. Now, you might think, well, that was common in the day. Yes, it was, but... We're seeing something far more than just forced labor of non-Israelite slaves that lived among Israel. And we will see, not until chapters 11 and so on, that we will see that when, when his son takes over the kingdom, it comes back to haunt him. You see, it's not just forced labor. He is pushing his people so hard on all of his personal projects that are listed in these chapters. It is selfish ambition that we are seeing. The temple's built. The palace is built, but the construction continues. In chapter 10, we see the visit of this famous queen of Sheba who comes to to, to see uh, Solomon because she's heard about all his fame and wealth. And upon her departure, we get a sense that there is a dangerous pride creeping into the heart of Solomon. For after she leaves, he builds himself, he orders his, his people to build himself a large throne made of ivory and gold. This is not for the temple, this is not for God, this is for him. And we read about untold riches and all the regular visits of people that he's showing his kingdom off to. In chapter 11, which perhaps is going to be the biggest snare in Solomon's life, we we read about the many foreign wives, 700 and 300 concubines. 
that bring with them from their foreign countries their gods and idols, and they are set up in places of worship. And it leads Solomon astray. And so I want to say in short that though in chapter 9 Solomon is at the peak of his fame and his wealth and his career as king, nevertheless, just beneath the surface, friends, problems abound. Now, can you not think that that could be also true for some of us? We need to be so cautious that outwardly we, we, we could be, things are rosy and fine, but just beneath the surface, maybe somewhere in the heart, things could be a different story. And so we see a paradox in the life of Solomon a wise man, a rich man, a famous man, a blessed man, and yet over this 20-plus years as king, he has made enough foolish decisions that has revealed a slow drifting of his heart. A slow drifting of his heart. And eventually he will reap what he has sown. It made me think of the song that Casting Crowns has written and sang called Slow Fade. The words to that, one of the verses of that song, slow fade, are, are these words. It says, it's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white are turned to gray and thoughts invade, choices are made, a price will be paid when you give yourself away. And then these words, people never crumble in a day. <laughs> it's a slow fade indeed. <clears throat> Solomon was not careful to steward the many blessings that God had given him. And of course, that's what we need to be conscious to do as well. We need to be conscious to steward the things that God has placed in our hands, to be careful to be doing everything that God has asked us to do with what he's given us, and be careful. If we look back 20 years, have we been faithful with all the Lord has given us? Do we see any evidence in the last 20 years of our church family of a slow fade? Do we, are we conscious of, of what the next 20 years might bring? It's a reminder, Solomon's life, that, that the faith that we have today will not sustain us tomorrow. That the grace that God gives today is, is for today and the grace we will need to seek Him for tomorrow in all the challenges that we will face, we will face tomorrow. And the faith that is enough to put a number on a pledge card and put it on an offering plate today will require additional faith to meet God in the journey, give glory to God, expect grace to come abounding down upon us and have faith to respond in the next three years to fulfill the pledge to go beyond whatever might God ask of us. That, that's what I get from Solomon's life here. And given the next 20 years, what is the guarantee that there won't be a slow fade upon our ministry to become a watered-down religious club instead of a church? I, I start thinking about that for kids and grandkids. What is the guarantee that the building that we might be led by God to build, won't fall into the hands of another generation that have a slow fading away from God, and one day it's just something else going on there. 
You see, there's no guarantees except that which we will carry in our hearts today. The guarantees that we have today is that we have faith in God, and we have the opportunity to influence the generation that lives with us right now in this place, and we have the opportunity to give them that trajectory of absolute abandoned faith in God. And then when we, we release the baton to that generation, trusting and praying to Almighty God that He would protect them in that covenant love that He has you know, friends, I, I don't want to grow old twiddling my thumbs. I, wanna, I, wanna, I don't want to grow old on the sidelines of ministry. I don't want to grow old thinking that the glory days were behind us or thinking about what could have been, sitting with my old cronies at some coffee shop, and <laughs> thinking about, you know, well, you remember when so-and-so was leading, you know. I don't want to do that. I, I want to believe that the better days are ahead of us. I want to be sitting in a coffee shop and thinking, wow, this generation, this generation, they put us to shame. This generation is going forward. Praise God. How can we support you? How can we help? That's what I want to do. I want to live into my old age not watching a slow fade on the church. I want to watch a slow fortification, strengthening, growing. I have three things I want to say about the scripture that we have before us. You'll notice in your blue insert that there is a summary of what the message is all about. In one statement, it is this. God's unconditional love to those who have placed their faith in His Son does not mean that He lets His children live as they please. Love always protects. Therefore, He both allows and designs consequences to sin so that His erring children will choose the path of peace. That's the sermon in a nutshell. Let's look at three points. First of all, the first point is not explicit in chapter 9, but it is implicit we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. The difference between a contract and a covenant. That, that marriage, Christian marriage, is built upon the idea of covenant love, not contract love. Covenant love which is built upon the very character of God who is never changing. And so therefore when we see a covenant promise being made and husbands and wives stand at the altar before witnesses, they take vows of covenant love, declaring that though they are weak, to fulfill such vows by faith in Christ, they will seek to be true to them and depend on God to fulfill them. So covenant love is a divine, unconditional, never-changing love toward the beloved. <clears throat> and it's interesting that in the various prayers recorded in Scripture that this covenant love, this covenant-keeping God is the one referred to. Let me just refer to a couple of them. Nehemiah chapter 1 says this, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him. In Daniel chapter 9 verse 4, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love for all who love him. In this prayer in Solomon chapter 8, 
in First Kings 8, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love. Over and over again, it's interesting. It is the covenant-keeping God that emboldens the prayer to come before him and say, God, you are a never-changing God. You will keep your promise. That's who you are. And so we come and we say, Lord, do what you've said you will do. Though I am a sinner, though I am weak, though I am frail, God, you said you're going to be faithful. I'm counting on you not to change. Amen. And that's the way God is. And as Christians, we come before God and we come before this covenant-keeping God and we come knowing that the blood of the covenant has been shed, Jesus Christ, as a guarantee ratifying this covenant, saying, regardless of your ways, God's unconditional covenant love will always be yours. Incredible. Let's move on to the second point. Covenant love is intent on protecting the heart of the beloved. Covenant love is easily misunderstood because we use words like unconditional. And unconditional love can be can sound like the response to it doesn't matter. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The response to covenant love matters in a huge way, for the aim of covenant love is always the protecting of the covenant. And if the covenant is going to be protected, the heart of the beloved has to be protected. You can, you can imagine in a marriage, this is true, we need only to think about the marriage relationship to know that the protection of the heart of the beloved is key to keeping the covenant. Married love is a commitment of love that is not just concerned with fulfilling vows by duty. Who wants to be loved out of duty? Who wants to be loved because of an agreement made in vows before witnesses? Who wants to be loved because somewhere someone has a document that states your obligations? Who wants to be loved because 25 years ago or 35 years ago you made these commitments so you better stick with it? No. You see, covenant love, it, it, it intends to guard and protect the heart of the beloved. Why is that? It's because it understands that love offered back has to be free will. Love offered back has to be voluntary. It has to be gladly given or it's not sincere. That's why John Piper said that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Because that's what covenant love responds with. And that's why there is so much talk in the Scriptures about the heart, because it's, it's out of the heart that all the issues of life flow. And we won't take the time to, to go through the Scriptures, but uh, there's a few of them I'll mention. Right back in, in Solomon, in Samuel 16, 7, 1 Samuel 16, 7, when God is looking for a king, he says to Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. David is called a man after God's own heart. When Solomon is being anointed as king, God says that your, that your descendants might faithfully be before me with all their heart. 
God is pleased with what Solomon asked for because he asked not just for riches, but for a wise and discerning heart. Solomon's prayer, he, he prays that if your people sin and then they have a change of heart, God, would you not receive them? And turning back to you with all their heart. In the dedication prayer at the end of it, verse 61 of chapter 8, he says to the Israelites, but your hearts must be fully committed to him. And in this chapter 9, verse 4, that we're looking at today, as for you, if you walk before me with integrity of heart. You see, heart is always the fountain. So many references to heart because it's from the heart that true devotion flows and all of life's decisions are influenced. You know that's true because all of the heart loves of your life determine where you will spend your money, determine how you will spend your time, determine what you will put your affections on, determine what you will defend and what you'll fight for and what you will give up on. It is out of the overflow of your heart that all of your life flows. Thirdly, I want to share that covenant love is always ready for restoration with the beloved. Now, this is an interesting feature because right away, when you read these scriptures, you're going to think that it is conditional love being announced. Because you'll notice in chapter 9, verse 4, that God says, if you walk before me with integrity of heart, verse 5, I will establish your throne, verse 6. And if you or your sons turn away from me, verse 7, I will cut Israel off. Now, does that not sound like conditional love? Yeah, it sounds like conditional love. But I really want you to, under, I want you to hear this. This is not conditional love. God's covenant love is absolutely unconditional. But you can believe it that God brings consequences according to our response to his conditional love. It is important that we understand the holy jealousy of covenant love that longs for the beloved to remain faithful to the covenant. And with that goal in mind, God will both allow and design consequences for the beloved if the covenant is broken so that returning to the shelter of covenant love is both welcoming and appealing. So, so hear me on this. God will, for your life, have natural consequences, and he will design consequences. For some, it's just the allowed consequences. You have chosen a certain path of waywardness, of disobedience, of loose living, of whatever, not careful about your heart before God. You have followed that path, and that path carries with it certain consequences. And God allows those consequences to fall upon you sometimes. And then There'll be other times when God will design the consequences because of his covenant love. Now, what does this mean in simple terms? I want you to know, first of all, that God has not changed his way of dealing with people. Old Testament, New Testament, church age, present age, God is not changing the way he deals with people. He's always the same. He's unchanging, immutable. That's who God is. His covenant love is like that as well. So what is God's covenant love like? He will do anything to protect the heart of the beloved. That's you and I. He'll do anything to protect our hearts. 
because he knows that's where it all flows from. To awaken a wayward people that have strayed, he will do anything, whether it's a slow fade that he's watching his people take or a big fall that he watches his people take, he will do anything he can to bring allowed for consequences or designed for consequences so that we will have everything before us. Life will be miserable. We will, he will make it winsomely, welcomely, lovingly open so that we choose his way over any other way. That's what God's like. That's covenant love. Now, please, think about this. What kind of parent would God be if he could watch one of us or a church entirely turn away from his covenant love, follow our own path, and he, as our father, does nothing to deter us from that path. What kind of father would that be? I mean, we are human parents. What kind of parents would we be if we watch our children following a path that we know is damaging, it's going to lead to bad things, and we would not do all within our power to turn them back? God does that. And the tough thing is that he does it he has to do it without violating our own will. And so he brings things into our lives, or he allows things into our lives. So this should cause us to think. Now, whenever a trial comes our way, whenever something is heavy upon us, whenever something happens, what should be the first question in the child of God? I believe the first thing we should say in response to God is, God, is there anything in my life that is willfully disobedient to you? Is there anything that your spirit wants to put his finger on that would cause me to say, God, this is why this is happening? God disciplines those he loves, those he accepts as children he disciplines. And there are two kinds of disciplines. There is a corrective discipline, and there is an instructive discipline. And when we come before God because something's gone bad, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, relational, or whatever, and we come before God and we say, God, have I erred? Is there something, you know, I'm not. He will point out if there's a corrective measure needed. That's his job. That's why the Holy Spirit was given. He will convict the, the world, it says. He will convict you. And then you just respond to God. And you see, God's covenant love heart is always ready for restoration. Ready for restoration. I'm not suggest. Please don't hear me saying, oh, I'm sick. Oh, I got this. Oh, this happened. I lost my job. Oh, God, must, I must be sending him out. No, I'm not saying that. Don't beat yourself up looking for something. The Spirit of God will reveal to you if you need corrective measures. He's the Father. He wants restoration with you more than you do. So if you've erred, don't, don't think that he's going to be playing games. But there might be this kind of discipline that God speaks of in Hebrews 11. We got this English language mixed up where we think discipline's a bad thing. Discipline is just God keeping you on his path. And it's instructive sometimes. That's why James 1 says, consider it pure joy. Get on that joy path when you, can, when you encounter trials of many kinds, many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance has to finish its work. Don't worry. God's got you where he wants you. Trust him. And that's where 
It is difficult. That's the kind of covenant love that the Father gives us. In the book of, in the Old Testament, we have the book of Hosea. And incredible. I mean, God is not in a box in this book. Let me tell you, it's, God asks his prophet, his messenger Hosea, to go and marry a prostitute, to have children with that prostitute, to name his children such and such and so on. And then as she goes out to do her trade in the evenings to receive her back, to go looking for her, bring her home, care for her needs. He says, you keep on loving her and you keep on forgiving her and you keep on wooing her back to you. And God says all the way along, Hosea, your whole life, your whole life and marriage and family is a commentary from me to Israel. Just go and live your life now. You're a message from me to Israel. And what does he say at the end of his book, near the end, in chapter 11, verse 8? What does God say to Israel? He says this. He says, how can I give you up? How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath, but mercy. Isn't that? Isn't that God? That's God's covenant love. Some of you, some of you this morning need to know God. You need to change your image of God in your head. You need to understand that coming back to the shelter of covenant love is the best and most safe place for you to be. You need to let go of this punitive God that somehow is in your mind that's just waiting for you to mess up. No, God wants restoration with you more than you do. I want you to think about this covenant love and individually and collectively. Let us come before God and sing a hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be, Consecrated Lord. Let's sing it on an individual basis, but let's sing it collectively as well. And as I said to you earlier, um, some of us are going to be in the front here. Just sing, sing the song with us and then come forward during the song if you'd like prayer. At the end of the service, Kevin will dismiss us and then some of us will remain behind and we'll pray with you. Again, this is, this is, this is, the, this is God's time. I'm not making any agenda. I just, if God is on your heart, if he's put his, his, his finger on anything, please come. God wants people to pray over you. God bless you.